Gordon, thank you again. And team, we so appreciate you guys doing such a good job of making sure that our hearts are engaged. You know, please understand that singing is not merely a, uh, you know, some setup or a preparation for worship. It's not just a setting of the table, so to speak. We very much try from top to bottom to make sure that we are very focused on what the Word of God has to say. In fact, our soft liturgy, to pull that veil back just a bit, is, is very simple, that we desire to read the Word of God, to pray the Word of God. We desire for the Word of God then to be sung, for it to also be heard, proclaimed, for the Word of God to be responded to, but also the Word of God to be seen. And what we mean by the Word of God to be seen is simply that there are two ordinances that our Lord and Savior have passed down to us given us, something to practice that reminds us of the revelation of who he is and his grace in the word of God. And that is the Lord's table, as we'll take here in just a, a, a few moments. <laughs> it's a joke. Um, and then also baptism, uh, where we get to see what the Lord has done. Uh, even just this week, we've had some visits with some people who desire to follow through in obedience to that. And what a joy that is just to, just to know that the good news continues to be good and change people's lives. And so it's just such a blessing that we get to share in that. And so as a church, it's just, I want you to have confidence that we are all in agreement that we desire the Word of God to be front and center. Now, with that said, I want to ask you to go ahead and turn, please, to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. Today we're going to look at verses 10 through 12. I don't know that we'll always just go two or three verses at a time. That's not necessarily my my aim, um, as much as it is my aim to make sure that, that as we gaze kind of slowly at this book, that we understand how appropriate and how relevant the Word of God is to our day, to our age, to just where we are as believers. Now again, just to remind you, First and Second Peter are both written to churches in Asia Minor, which would be largely Turkey uh, in present day. And these are churches that are being persecuted for their faith. They're being persecuted from the outside, from governments and from workplaces and from friends, other people who believe other things. They are, their goods are being plundered. They're not given jobs, so on and so forth. And it's causing a lot of confusion because as you know, so often there's a little bit of a tweak in teaching to say, if you're good with God, things will go good with you. And the fact is that's not true. Um, it could be true, but that's only just a grace and a mercy should the Lord allow such a thing and do such a thing. The fact is, is that we are going to have trouble in this life. Christ even promised this to his disciples. When you read what he preached and what he said about his disciples in John 17, as he prays for them, this priestly type prayer, it is very fascinating to, to just understand they are going to have trouble just like Christ does. So in the course of this, we know that it's going to be tumultuous. If we're following Christ, there's going to be a backlash in this world. Now, we shouldn't have a backlash because we're sinners. We shouldn't have a backlash because we're jerks. Uh, we shouldn't have a backlash because we're allowing some other ideologies apart from the gospel to be front and center in our argument. What we need to make sure is simply that we are faithfully, faithfully following our Lord and Savior Christ. And then when we suffer because of that or face persecution, or even just when the Lord allows us to go through difficulty so the world can watch how we hope in the midst of pain, we trust that the Lord has an administration for why he's doing this. Because he is good. He is glorious. Now, Second Peter is another type of suffering because in light of the physical suffering, some false teachers began to come in and say, you must not be teaching rightly because you're experiencing so many problems. 
Well, let me tell you the real way to go. And so false teachers then enter into the framework somewhere between first and second Peter in that time frame. And so then Peter gives very similar instructions as he does in this letter in second Peter to help gird them up, strengthen them in their understanding of the gospel. It's outworking. He does specifically deal with the problem at hand. But then he reminds them that in light of all this, it is temporary and our Lord is returning one day. It's a very similar pattern in both books. So in light of this, what we know for sure is that our theme being living as exiles, which is our theme for both books as we study these over who, over who knows how long, that as we study these living as exiles, one of the resounding messages that we have here at the beginning is that we are to have hope and that hope is based on something much greater than us and it certainly is based on something outside of this framework of our world. Peter has reminded them that this is not home for the believer. They've been given a new citizenship. They've been given a new inheritance and that inheritance is, is being held for you someplace and it's perfect. And in the meantime, our Lord is preparing you to receive that inheritance one day. No, not the prosperity gospel type of inheritance. If you have enough faith and you'll get enough goods and stuff here, not at all. I'm just simply talking about the inheritance that is in the person of Christ and what we will have and experience with him face to face one day for those who are genuinely in Christ. So as we've walked through this and we've seen what he's established in these first few verses, that even if you look back at verse three, when he says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that's when he speaks of the inheritance that is imperishable and being kept and that we are being tested, verse seven, as to the genuineness of our faith so that we actually learn to hold that well, even in this world, even in the midst of suffering. Now, then he goes on. If you look in verses uh, following in verses eight and nine, he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. He's very much speaking of faith, but one day faith will then give way to sight. You don't see him now, that's faith. The evidence of things hoped for the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, okay? We have faith that Jesus is the greater reality than stuff that we see and feel and know. And so we bank on him even though we don't see him. But one day it will give way. It will give way. We don't have to worry about faith at some point in time in the future because we'll see him face to face. Because he says in verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And what he means by that in this text is, what he, is the consummation of us being in the very presence of Christ one day. He's not talking about, well, if you endure and, and grit, I'm trying to think the best way to put it because there, there is an evidence surely in the Bible of only those who persevere to the end are genuinely saved. But what I don't mean to say is simply that if you persevere, then you will be saved as if it's your works. You understand the distinction? So what he, what he means in this text, though, is that we will actually obtain or realize, have fully realized what we've had faith in all along, seeing Christ face to face. Okay, now for most of us, we will go through a gauntlet of death. You know, we, we wait and we long and we hope for the return of Christ, but there will be a gauntlet of death, just as we have experienced in my own family's life, which by the way, I, I so appreciate your uh, condolences and the prayers for our family. Um, I'll actually be leaving this week to help with uh, my father's funeral and doing that and just pray for your prayers. Um, if you would just 
ask you to pray for great grace and patience and mercy and just that the Lord would protect the gospel in that time because there will be many there who do not know Christ. But I'm very appreciative of how you guys have been so mercifully supportive of me and my family during all of this transition, but especially in the last couple of weeks as we've been grappling with the death of the patriarch and and just, you know, greatest man that I've ever known. Um, Thank you. Well, here we are in verses 10 through 12. Here's what he says. Read along with me. Concern, well, follow along with me. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now, what we're going to look at this morning is in living as exiles in this world, as those who don't have a home here, but we long for that home to come, is one of the things that we have is the revelation of hope. Okay, so we have our hope in our future inheritance. We have our hope in Christ who has saved us, who is preserving, who has given us that inheritance and preserves it. But what we also have is a hope for right now. And that hope has been delivered to us through particular means. The means being the Bible, the scriptures. And he says that the prophets have spoken these things and delivered them to us so that we would understand them, embrace them, experience them, but then hope in them still until kingdom come. So the revelation of this hope is really, there's three main things I think in this passage that I hope will be something that will be a blessing to you and may even instill in you um, maybe a renewed commitment to read the word of God, to find in there your source of hope. We're gonna talk about how the hope that we have that's revealed is revealed through the prophets. It's revealed as grace. And we'll talk about that. I think it's fascinating that Peter chose this word, but also that it's revealed for the purpose of hope. So it's revealed by prophets, it's revealed as grace, and it's revealed for hope. It's to carry us through, to carry us on. When my daughters have, uh, two of our daughters have graduated high school, one is at, at Baylor, she's a junior this year, and one has come with us, Elizabeth, she just graduated high school. One of the things I talk to them about when they graduate high school is do not underestimate the common means of grace. Now, I talk to Anna about this a lot in, uh, at a distance now that she's, you know, away from us and can't just come home on the hard weekends or whatever. Um, and as we talk through, I just remind her, honey, don't forget the common means of grace. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, on a private personal level, I mean that you have the ministry of the word, you have the ministry of prayer, okay? But on a corporate level, you have the ministry of the local church, that you can gather with the local church to hear the word of God preached and proclaimed. Don't underestimate the power of what the word of God can perform in your life. We are a people who are so impatient and so always looking for the silver bullet solution. In fact, those of us who are really determined to do that biblically, we will try to find our silver bullet scriptures and more times than not, we are radically taking those out of context. I mean, we really are. I can do all things through Christ. I mean, it's a good pass and everything, but I'm sure that that, you know, the pass and catch may not be what was in mind about I can do all things through Christ or I can bench past 380. 
I mean, I've never done that personally. I mean, I was, it was good to get 225 and I was 18 and then I, I don't know, everything glitched after that. But the fact is, is, you know, it's, it's, it's not really driven to say we take things out of context because we want this silver bullet kind of inspirational moment out of scripture. And there are any number of devotions that you can buy online in a Christian bookstore and they will take things out of context all the time to try to find this silver bullet solution for you in whatever ails you. The fact is the word of God, all of the word of God, giving us this large redemptive story of what God was doing before the foundations of the earth, laying those foundations, calling men and women to himself, and then also in the middle of time, in time actually sending Christ, God the Son, in the middle of time, intervening into history, physically coming into this world to perform and enact a redemption that had already been promised and prophesied about, but to then actually perform it. Not unlike when God spoke, let there be light. And as we know, according to Colossians 1, Christ was the agent who actually went and made what God spoke. That doesn't mean God could not have formed it just with those words. But as God spoke, according to Colossians 1, Christ, that part of the Trinity, actually then formed all that we know as far as the cosmos. And we know then, according to Genesis 1-3, that the Spirit of God, as He hovers over the waters, that Hebrew, Hebraic term of preservation, that similarly in, in Ephesians 1-13, we have the Holy Spirit who, in a sense, hovers over our salvation, guarantees our inheritance, preserves us, secures us, indwells us, seals us with what we know. God spoke through the prophets, Christ came in time and enacted all the promises of God and the Spirit of God's sense sustains and preserves. We have a triune, perfect, holy God that has saved you if indeed you are saved. What possibly could undo this? There's no lack of hope that we have. And the Word of God through every page, I know you have to, you know, grit it out through Leviticus and Numbers as we've said before, but throughout the pages, there's revelation, prophetic revelation that this was to be. Then we see that it was. And then we see how we're supposed to live while we wait. So as he says this, and it's revealed through the prophets, what does it say is revealed? Well, he says concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied. So clearly he's talking about the salvation that comes through the person of Jesus Christ. He is saying that the Old Testament prophets, as they wrote down what the Spirit of God had given them to write down, were all about writing what it meant to be saved through the person of Jesus Christ. So when you see a Moses, there is a type of Christ figure in Moses. When you see David, there is a, a kingly Christ figure in David. Of course, we know that Christ came actually out of David's line, but at the same time, we also know that these are types, just as Joshua was. Very Old Testament, actual, if his name was in the New Testament, Joshua's name would be Jesus. We have all these types, all these figures, even Christ being called the second Adam, whereas we have the first. There are types. Of course, they all failed in, 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 in all the different respects that they did. They weren't meant to be the Christ, but they pointed us to give us pictures of the one who eventually would fulfill. Even Paul himself says that the promises that were made, the covenant promises made to Abraham and his seed, he's really, clear. I mean, he gets real down, he gets down to the grammar. He's, he says it wasn't plural. He didn't say it to seeds as a bunch of people. He said seed as in one. And he says in Galatians, that's one seed is Christ. God made a promise way back to Abraham and it was all about the Christ. 
It's about this salvation, this redemptive story that is the person of Christ. In fact, even in Peter's life, look at what he said. Flip over to 2 Peter chapter 1, 16 through 21. I want you to see how important this is in Peter's life and ministry. Here's what Peter says in this second letter, which came just not too long later, but we also know, according to this first chapter, that Peter also knows that his death is imminent here in 2 Peter chapter 1. And yet again, though, he's reemphasizing what he is talking about over in 1 Peter 1, verse 10. He says in verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on that holy mountain. This is the Mount of Transfiguration, if you remember, where then the images of of Moses and Elijah show up. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. He doesn't mean that it wasn't confirmed. He just says they were experientially going through it. To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. There's that sustained hope that the word of the prophetic word of God then experienced in real time when Christ actually came, is to sustain us until he comes. This very same thing that Peter's talking about. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now let's go back to the very beginning of Peter's public ministry. Go to Acts chapter 1, if you would. Take just a couple of minutes or seconds or whatever it takes for you, get over to Acts chapter 1. I want you to see this. After they replaced Judas' absence among the 12 with Matthias, if you go to verse 15, it says, In those days, Peter stood up. This is Acts chapter 1, verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, brothers, so this is the smaller group. This is just pre the Pentecost message, okay? He says, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he is numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. I mean, even down to this replacement of Matthias, he sees the connection of it being a prophetic, prophetic fulfillment of the word of God. Now, look then down to when he actually does begin this ministry of the Holy Spirit. If you go down to chapter two, verse 14, it says, but Peter standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And what he does here is he goes on and gives a a, a very simple but profound exposition of Joel prophesying about the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord being fulfilled at the day of Pentecost when Christ would ascend and the Spirit of God would fall on the church and empower the church for ministry until then Christ would return. He's saying this is that prophetic fulfillment of something that the prophets wrote. Okay, now 
please keep in mind, and I don't know exactly the number of days, 50, 60 days prior, Peter is lopping off ears of Roman soldiers. Okay? But you have this incredible, pretty pronounced 40-day period when he is with Jesus. And according to verse 6 of Acts chapter 1, it says that Jesus taught them about the kingdom. In that simple little phrase, we then can understand how Peter can go from sword-wielding, aggressive responder to this guy who actually can then expound Old Testament prophecy and know and understand that it is being fulfilled in the moment. Governed by the Holy Spirit, yes, but taught by Christ as to the cohesiveness of the Old Testament with what was going on in their day, which then for us becomes the completed canon of the Word of God, the Old and the New Testaments. It's fascinating that the prophetic word being fulfilled in the person of Christ has been in and around Peter's ministry and life from the very beginning. Now, we know this to be true really in a sense with all of them, but because Peter was there from day one, we really see how central this must be to the life of the follower of Christ. As his ministry then publicly begins with, at Pentecost with, with Joel's prophetic writing, but then also is able to give prophetic utterance basically because of something in Psalm referring to the Lord, the Lord of my Lord, talking about David, and then he preaches out of a Psalm as well on that same Pentecost day. The Spirit of God is governing all of this, and what the Scriptures say is that it, they were seeking into, they prophesied about this grace that was to be theirs. They searched, they inquired, and what were they inquiring about? They were inquiring about what person or time. They didn't know that the Christ's name would be Jesus, necessarily. They didn't know who He was. In fact, in many ways, you can read the Gospel of John, and John's, there's in a sense, kind of two volumes if you, or four volumes of John's work. You've got John's gospel and then you have first, second, and third John, those letters. Whereas John's gospel is about identifying who is the Christ, the Christ is Jesus. In first John, you can then read about the assurance of knowing that you have and possess Jesus the Christ. It's about the prophetic word coming together and being seen, being known, being realized, and being written down for us so that we can have sustained hope. Sorry to flip around so much, but I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 1 now. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Could you possibly have more magnificent language in just a, a sentence? The revelation of Christ prophesying, where there had already been prophecies by prophets prior, I didn't mean for all the P's to be thrown in there, but it just kind of happened. That's about as close as I get to speaking in tongues, by the way, just what was just happened right there. So the, the idea of, of how significant it is that we have the Word of God written down to show us and, and reveal to us the message of the Christ that is in concert with the prophetic message of all the Old Testament. How can we not give primacy to the Word of God in our lives? Guys, our hope does not lie in 
good book binding, although I do like really good leather and I like the binding, but I'm not a, I don't make an idol of the type of binding and paper that it's on, that it has a particular GSM. For those who know, you know, it's a geek thing. But the idea here is that it is the word of God that's revealed off of the pages. That that's where we find our hope. To claim that we have a lack of hope or are hopeless and yet are devoid of the word of God being poured over our lives, we are doubling down on hopelessness. And yet we have the spirit of God dwelling in us as Christians. Now again, I know I'm only speaking to genuine born again believers of whom only the father really knows. But if you believe yourself to be a true Christian, then the spirit of God indwells you. The same spirit that gave all the utterance to all the prophets to speak about what was to come that was for us. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. The spirit of God that dwells in us is the same spirit that then inspired the word of God. When those two things go together, when this, the spirit driven, expounded word of God touches on the inner spirit of you, same spirit at work, you almost can't not have some, just some measure of hope. It doesn't mean you'll become the happiest person on earth, but you will be sustained. Christian, with the Spirit of God in you, if you do not tap into the word of the Spirit then, you have no claims on hope otherwise. That's not to say you're not a Christian. That's just to say he has given us something that will sustain us until the end, regardless of what happens between now and the end. It's circumstanceless. But his word remains. So it's revealed through prophets, this hope that we have. And the revelation is all about the person of the Christ fulfilling what the prophets have said. But it says that they were looking and seeking and inquiring about a person and a time. Guys, there is a historicity to what we understand about the scripture. These are real events, real people, real things that occurred at specific points in time, trusting God's sovereign administration for Christ's coming at the exact time that he did to perform exactly what he did. And then for the prophets then, or for the apostles then to put down in written form all of those occurrences so that we would be sustained putting together both the Old Testament and the New Testament to see the larger redemptive story of hope that is found only in salvation in Christ. See, if anything, the cohesiveness of what Peter is saying here about what was revealed from the prophets and then was revealed in for our sake or for the sake of his audience here to sustain them until Christ returns. If anything, that cohesiveness reminds us that that redemptive story arc that we see in the scripture pushes out every other false narrative of hope. The only hope that we have is in Christ and actually is the only hope that can sustain you. How good is that? In fact, I would go back in a sense to our message from last week and say part of what necessitates suffering in the life of the believer is to remind us that our only hope is in the eternal God and Savior Christ. We are so stubborn about where we find our hope. It's revealed through the prophets. 
The second thing is, it's revealed as grace. Now, there's a lot of descriptors you could give for salvation in the scriptures. You know, we, you know, I think more colloquial for, for us or for the West would be born again, a born again Christian or an evangelical. Um, and, you know, whatever comes along with that these days, I'm not really sure. But the fact is, we can use a lot of different terminology. But, you know, Peter's go-to phrase, his go-to description of salvation is grace. Now, Paul talks a lot about grace as well. I'm not juxtaposing these two whatsoever. But Paul also talks a lot about the mystery of the gospel. He uses this mystery word a lot. And just so you know, that mystery word, Tim, sit down. I'm just kidding. Um, That mystery word a lot has to do with the idea that the Gentiles can actually share in the salvation that came through the Jews. But there's also another part of that mystery, and that is just because you're Jewish doesn't mean you're in. Because all have to go through Christ. There's a double, kind of double side to this mystery. Now, Paul sees that as grace upon grace. I mean, how can you read Romans and not know of the default that Paul has for grace? Because it almost sounds scandalous the way he preaches it. Peter, in his life and in his ministry, has come around to very much the same kind of embrace. That what has been revealed by the prophets is really nothing less than grace. What is grace? Well, you know it to be something like unmerited favor, a gift that's just bestowed without anything owed whatsoever. But I just simply want to describe a couple of things about this grace, and I'm not going to extend really much beyond the text itself. But I think it's important for us to see that this hope being revealed from the prophets as grace is an important trajectory that we need to have as followers of Christ. We need to be those who default to understanding we are receivers of grace. Undeserved. Nothing in us that he would foreknow and look upon and go, you know what, I think they're going to be good enough to get there. There's nothing in the scripture that speaks of that. In fact, you don't have an ounce of righteousness that's worth saving. It's grace. Okay, look at what he says. So he says this about this grace. It's not a lot, but it's a little bit. He says this grace, look at this phrase, that was to be yours. They searched and inquired carefully. As they were being led along by the Spirit of God, these Old Testament prophets writing about the one who would come, they were wondering and in wonderment about this grace that could be revealed, this grace that would come through this suffering servant. That could be this priest that would be the priest to end all priesthoods. That would satisfy God's righteous requirements. That would also be a king forever and would lead his people to a promised land that was well beyond just simply Jerusalem and the region. They they wondered about it. Who is this? Who is this going to be? And when is it going to happen? Longing for it. And so much of what you see in the Old Testament is what happens to the Jewish people when they grow impatient waiting. Well, then they start intermarrying with other religions and other groups and they start to disobey because they can't trust the kingdom to come and they try to make a kingdom right now. Before we give them too much of a hard time, why don't we look a little bit inward? Because the root of all sin really is a lack of faith that God is going to fulfill his promise to be gracious. 
So we want it now because we think we deserve it now. It's so juxtaposed, but that's exactly what we do as believers. I mean, as, as humans. Every other religion on planet Earth, when it comes to righteous requirements, requires something of the human element. When I was pastor in Fayetteville, Arkansas, we shared a property line with uh, the University of Arkansas, the main campus, and 25, 30,000 students. And in ministering to our college students, I would often share with them, look, you're going to have, because there was a free speech part, free speech mall on campus. And I would share with them because I would have a lot of questions on what about this group and that group, because some of these groups that would come in sounded very Christian. And I said, well, you know, you can, you can do all the research. You can certainly Google and see what you can find out. But the fact is, you're going to go a little bit stir crazy trying to figure out what all you're supposed to be against. So why don't we simplify this? So here's what I want you to do. I want you to filter what you're hearing through two things. I want you to hear what they're saying about who are they saying requires righteousness and who are they saying actually has to fulfill that righteous requirement. So just think about righteousness. Are they saying God requires this or is it a man? So that would tell you one thing because certain false religions, they'll attach it to God. But just like the Judaizers, they would say, well, you're supposed to fulfill part of this commitment, you personally instead of just Christ doing that. But there's others who say, oh, it wasn't just God, but it's actually also this man who's requiring this of you. Well, I mean, just you get to the first point and you're just, okay, I'm out because this isn't about any other man. That's a cult. Okay, but you can hear the first one and have some confusion. Well, then you get to the second part. Okay, who are they saying actually is supposed to fulfill this requirement? Is it you or does someone else do it on your behalf? Every other religion on planet earth, everyone says there's something still for you to do. Christianity alone says that it's already been done in Christ. Now, your part, so to speak, is simply to, as the Spirit of God reveals that truth to you, to have faith that Christ has done it all on your behalf. Lived perfectly, died for him unjustly, but you deserved it but he took it, raised from the dead, rose again so that there's no more sacrifice or perfect life needed. And you believe in and upon him to have done that for you. And according to the scriptures, you will be saved if that's genuinely your belief. Now there's marks of a genuine Christian. So when you say, well, that sounds too easy. Well, I mean, it is that simple, but you have to remember this is, I mean, how simple is it for a dead man to take a breath? I mean, that's, a, that's a bonafide miracle. It's, I mean, scripturally, we are defined as those who are dead, spiritually dead, not just comatose, you are gone. He awakens you, he enlivens you, and you say yes. And no matter how pronounced that moment was for you when you came to Christ, it could have been over a stretch of time, it could have been in a moment. Whatever it is, though, here's what I promise you. I promise no one in that moment or in those moments over time are sitting there going, uh, Jesus, paganism, Satan, God. Okay, we'll go with Jesus. There is an overwhelming sense. It doesn't have to be radically emotional, but there's an overwhelming sense that what he has said according to the word of God is true. It's true about me. It's true about him. And I accept it as much. Now, to the world, that sounds foolish. 
That sounds like we are dumb and blind and gullible. But what we're saying is, no, actually we were given sight and awakened. And that also, though, should give us some sympathy to those who are not, not because we've achieved anything, because we required something outside of us to do this. The Word of God working with the Spirit of God to give us faith. This is grace. You couldn't do anything for yourself because you were dead. (laughs) I was dead. This is grace. But then he says about this grace, they're inquiring about it. And what are they inquiring about? In them, it was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So this grace includes something of what Christ has done and performed for us. He suffered. He suffered being reviled in his life. Certainly all of the persecution that happened to him when he was going through that Passion Week. Certainly then the death. But then the subsequent glories being raised from the dead. Being seen by his followers and giving them the truth about the kingdom. Forty some odd days later ascending to the right hand of the Father where he still to this day intercedes for those that are his own as our great high priest. He's at the right hand of the Father. In a very real sense, the only reason you are still saved is because he is still alive. This is grace. And it's revealed as such. Lastly, it's revealed for hope. It's not just so that we understand it comes through prophets. This can be pretty forensic if you're not careful. Okay, so we have these prophets and we can line up the time periods and see, uh, you know, compare that to um, uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh and let's just see kind of classic writings and let's really study it academically. Look, when you get down to it though, we have to come to a place of understanding it's the Spirit of God that does this, the Spirit of God that gives us faith to believe that this has occurred. And that we also have to have the Spirit of God that gives us the faith to believe that when this occurred, it recurred as a gracious work of salvation by God. And if all that occurs, then we understand that all this is for our hope. You have experienced in your lifetime, if you're a Christian, what the prophets thousands of years ago wrote about. And no matter what happens between now and the end of your lifetime, the, other, the right hand of the dash you know because of what the very word of God says, it's for your hope. This larger redemptive storyline, he says, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you. I I try to always do some uh, original language studies, but it was just kind of humorous to me when I began reading the, the verse 12 and, and looking at the languages. It, it's, it's almost as if it's saying the announcers were announcing an announcement and you need, and anyway, this, this basically word and uh, play on words for di- different parts of speech was all about the announcement. Well, it's the good news announcement, but it was just fascinating because if you read that actually in the English, it would sound almost ridiculous, but then it actually brings a cohesiveness to 
First of all, just how good the good news is that everything that Christ did in angels giving declaration, in prophets giving declaration, that there was a cohesiveness and a consistency over and over and over again to this single pronounced announcement of what God is saying and let those who hear the announcers announcing this announcement pay attention and embrace it, that this is the good news for you. This is hope. He's not made it complicated. It is hope. And for you to try to find it elsewhere is only to your demise. That same hope that you heard when you came to Christ is that same message that you are to remember as you are sustained until Christ returns. This consistent redemptive storyline. He has secured it in his word. He has by his grace revealed it and had it written down through his word. And it is for our future hope. You don't have to turn there, but just a few pages prior, if you were to look over in Hebrews 11, 39 and 40, it's, it's common. It's, it's, a, it's a passage that I use often. It says, and all of these, though commanded through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. God has seen fit for an administration of time for us to understand that the grace that he has revealed through the person of Jesus Christ is to sustain us even if it costs us our lives. Which again, Hebrews 11 is all about those who never received yet were faithful. It's, it's, a, it's a litany. It's not a crowd cheering us on. It's actually historical figures who have get, given us examples of how to live. And yet none of them received what was promised at the time. But they were faithful because there was a promise to come later. It's hope for us. This prophetic word of God that reveals his grace. I do want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Flip over to Ephesians 3. I want you to see what Paul says. Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 7. Paul says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power to me through, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That phrase deals with angelic beings. It's a testimony even to those that are, that were created but have been sustained. So the angels even. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart. There's the hope, right? Don't lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is for your glory. Don't lose heart. Why? Because he is basing everything on the revealed word of God that even now that it's been given to the church, it's through the church that should even bear such a testimony to the, in a sense, outer rim of creation, even angelic beings, which our text even goes there. These are things into which the angels long to look in verse 12 of 1 Peter 1. The local church should be so enamored and so focused on the prophetic word of God being revealed that the angels again are hearing this amazing 
act of God's grace and they just want to know more. Why? Because they are with in his presence the holy God of the universe. They don't need faith for what they see. They see him and they wonder how in the world can this beautiful, glorious, almighty, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent being love them, show grace to them. And what must that feel like? I'm not getting into the emotion part of it, but I am asking, what is it about us that would be so centered? It's not about us having an uproarious kind of experience that's beyond kind of just how God's made our personalities. Um, I had a guy in college that was constantly telling me to be happy and I was like, I am happy. And I would say it like that. And I said, I can't help, you know, my resting face is just how God made it. He planted it on there. I can't do anything about it. I'm really happy. Leave me alone. You know, it was just kind of like that. Some of you have the same plight that I do. You're incessantly happy, but you just don't look like you're just all that happy all the time. I'm really happy. So just leave me alone about it. And, but the fact is we don't have to be, step outside of ourselves and become someone that we're not. What I'm saying is when we proclaim what the prophets spoke about, what they prophesied about. Then in time, what the very angels came, yes, it was recorded by the apostles, but when the angels then come and announce the evangel, they come and announce the announcement that was announced to them by the announcer who is God. When they make the announcement, he is here, come and see the Messiah. They make the announcement in time. They are in wonder of these things. And then when Paul says it's through the church, it is through the church that as we proclaim the prophetic word by the power of the Holy Spirit that we impart hope. And we don't just impart hope here, but we actually will end up sharing in something in the heavenlies one day with the angels, helping them somehow understand the nature of what it means to be born again. Now, again, I'm not saying that means you have to become a different personality type, but shouldn't it probably stir us up just a little bit more when we know that angelic beings who've been around for eons Look upon the Savior and wonder how in the world, how in the cosmos can these people know him? What must that be like to be loved by him? Shouldn't it tweak it just a bit? The angels long to look into this glorious grace that the prophets have given us through the word of God. So guys, it's all the more reason. I hope that you will be encouraged to first of all, recommit yourself to the reading of the word of God. The application is not hard this morning. The prophetic word of God needs to be read. You, it's not for lack of copies. We all have multiple, if not digital. You can read the word of God. Have the word of God opened, read it. Don't underestimate the power if you are truly a believer of the spirit indwelling you with the spirit that put these words together through real men with real personalities, but has preserved it. Don't underestimate the power of hope that it can give you. If you find a silver bullet verse, great. But overall, I would say, don't go looking for this one verse. Oh, I've got to find a verse. Just let the word of God and the larger redemptive story of what's going on in the Bible, let it minister to you. Guys, this is why we at Milford Bible very much try to make sure that our studies are Bible studies. That when we preach the word of God, we are expounding chapter and verse, the word of God. Because that larger redemptive story is the most hopeful thing we possibly could have in this world. 
There will probably be times we come across a text and I'll say, well, here's three points in how to improve your marriage. But overall, what I also know is there's no greater improvement for marriage than a husband who actually grips the idea that he has been saved by the grace of God. It will change him radically in how he treats his bride who, as he's reading the word, he's going to start to realize, oh, wait, how I treat her is representative of how Christ treats the church. Hmm, I've got some work to do and let God do the work. And we try to do that together. And I love that Paul brings this back through the local church that we can present this hope to the world. And we can also present it in such a way that even angels, just as they rejoice when one comes to faith in Christ, because it's a wonderment to them, they rejoice, I believe, when churches faithfully proclaim the word and respond to that word. Because they want to know what it's like. So, get back into the Bible. And if you're looking for a church, we invite you here. We invite you to be part of us as we just try to mind the depths of the Word of God together. But for the purpose of being transformed, we invite you to be here with us. Now, I will say this lastly, is if you don't know Christ, maybe you've heard this, you've heard some of prophet stories, you've heard about Noah, you've heard about Moses, you've heard about the Red Sea, and you wonder maybe they're just fantastical stories. But maybe something this morning has begun to undo you just a little bit to realize, you know, but the Bible also says that you are a sinner and cannot save yourself. The Bible says that Jesus Christ came and is God and he came and died, but he also rose again. And as fantastic as that sounds, there's something in you that's starting to believe this to be true. I want you to speak with one of us, speak with one of the elders, anyone in the, one of the church members, they will point you to find one of us to talk to us about what it means. I'll be at the back at the end of the service. I invite you to share in the grace that was revealed through the prophets for your hope. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the grace that we have through Christ Jesus alone. We thank you that you have mercifully given us a word of God that is complete and it has everything that you would ever desire for us to know about you and about salvation. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the value of reading it and memorizing it and just getting back into the word. And if anything, let our hopelessness Let how undone the last year and a half, two years have been for many of us. Let that have its full effect to drive us back to just some basic practices of quietly praying and being in your word and and not lustfully waiting for something else to give us hope. Because what is revealed in your word is your grace of salvation and a promise of your return. And we look forward to that coming. But Lord, in the meantime, we pray that we would be riddled with hope, so much so that the larger Milford community just wonders, not at our silliness by any means, but at the seriousness of our hope and our kindness, that our hope that can, that can constantly sacrifice ease and comfort on our own side just for the sake of serving the people here. And may that bring them to a point of inquiry Why do you have this hope? And may we be ready to answer. May your word have its perfect effect even now, Lord. 
even as we now view it, as we take communion and see the grace that has been revealed in the word put on display through drink and bread. And may you be honored and glorified in it. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.